When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, an ABMA podcast. Today we are talking with special guest Mark Simmons as we discuss his incredible presentation, Past as Prologue, which received a standing ovation at the 2023 ABMA and IMATA Joint Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. We're also talking about the announcement made in March 2023 about the plans to attempt to release Tokate, also known as Lolita, the killer whale, and also the two Pacific white-sided dolphins, Lee and Loki back to the Pacific Northwest. This podcast is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad you're here. I'm your host, Shane. I'm a current ABMA board member and behavior nerd. For anyone joining us again on the podcast, we're so excited to have you back and to continue to talk about behavior. The goal of this podcast is to implement one of the goals of the ABMA, which is to continue the spread of knowledge and sharing throughout the animal care field. Each episode, we will break down one topic that involves the science of behavior and animal training. We want to provide a resource for newer trainers to learn and for experienced trainers to be refreshed. Even though the content you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, we think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by the animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with and others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all that you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. Today is a really special episode. It's actually our 10th episode of the podcast, and I'm really excited that our guest today is Mark Simmons. Excited to be able to talk some behavior with him. Unfortunately, the circumstances of this happening right now maybe isn't as great, but regardless, I actually... Uh, met Mark in person, which was incredible, at the 2023 ABMA and IMATA Annual Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Mark gave the final presentation, which was titled Past is Prologue. And to give a little sneak peek, we're going to talk about this later in the episode, but this was the final talk at the conference. But at the end of it, there was a standing ovation. I can tell you it was not because it was the last talk. It was because it was so powerful and it's really crazy it's almost a little poetic that that talk passes prologue is really tying into what we're going to be talking about today but i talked to mark and back then he said he would come on the podcast and was planning to bug him a little bit later but with the announcement of the dolphin company's plans to release toki the killer whale also known as lolita Unfortunately, it seems like we're on a trajectory to repeat the awful events of the past, and we're going to dive into that. We're also going to be talking about uh, Mark's talk and thoughts, those really inspiring things about how all of us that are listening to this podcast right now, we can have an effect on the future, and there's really no one better to help me discuss this today than Mark Simmons. So thanks for joining me, Mark. Thank you, Shane. I'm really excited to be here. I mean, this this is so easy. This is this is the home team, home crowd, you know. I mean, we're talking about behavior. And one of the things I enjoy most is that you don't have to convince this audience how important behavior is. So um, great to be here. Thanks for, for having me. Mark, a lot of people, I think, who are listening to this probably know who you are. I mean, I know I read your book, Killing Keiko, The True Story of Free Willy's Return to the Wild about five or six years ago. And I mean, if you haven't read it, highly suggest it, not just because Mark is is my guest today, but 
it truly is. It's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one, but it's really important for us to understand that history and to have that background. Mark has also been in the training behavior field for a long time, but for anyone who maybe isn't as familiar with you, Mark, can you give us a, a short synapse of your career? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I, I was, you know, I was born in Virginia, not around marine mammals. Most of my career is with marine mammals. So that's a little bit odd, but you know, on a trip to SeaWorld, uh, and we can all we can all talk about that kind of experience in our life. On a trip to SeaWorld, I was just I, I was just so blown away by it. And I said, I've got to do that. And so um, I worked at SeaWorld Orlando it was my first job in the professional field. I worked with dolphins, belugas, sidorca, lags, killer whales, uh, walrus, polar bears, got to go out on beachings, rescues uh, and strandings with the animal care team quite a few times after SeaWorld. I went on to Marine Land St. Augustine for a short spell, and then Keiko in Iceland after that. Harbor Branch Oceanographic after the Keiko project, where I really spent a lot of time in, in field research and rescue. And that really changed the trajectory of my career and a lot of the ways I see our field today. Taught some classes here and there, which is fun. I love uh, doing that. And then, of course, published the book in 2014. And today I, I manage an animal welfare database because I'm a geek. I love data. <laughs> data about behavior in animals. So that that worked out. And that's amazing. That's, I think, everyone, most of us listening to this are also geeks for that, too. I do have to bring up something. So we I just listened Grace Stafford's podcast, Zoo Logic. If anyone hasn't listened to that podcast in general, another great resource. But this past week, he released an episode with Mark and Billy Hurley, and they call themselves the Orca Band, getting back together, talking about this. So uh, <laughs> highly suggest, every, luckily for us, I'll say they don't sing, but they talk a lot about this all these things that are going on. So that's a great resource. If you want to know more information, definitely check that out. But in that, you said that SeaWorld Ohio people were weird. And I have a little bit of beef with that because I'm from Ohio, grew up in Ohio. That's SeaWorld Ohio is where my passion came from. So yeah, sorry, I'm not taking that back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back in the day when I worked there, there was a rival a rivalry between parks. And you can blame that on Thad Lysenik, by the way, because he, <laughs> he created that. So he was looking to create healthy competition. But and that's exactly why I poked that at that jab at uh, at Gray Stafford. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I can tell you, like, I still, I can not even close my eyes and I picture the road leading up to SeaWorld, Ohio, because that's such a huge part of my childhood. And I always tell people that my parents don't know a leopard from a cheetah, a hippo from a rhino, and all of my love came from going to these places and seeing that happen, even as an adult in 2019, when I went back to SeaWorld Orlando for the first time in a long time. And I was watching uh, the dolphin show and just at the end, everyone's energy, I got emotional because I was like, this is, this is why we do this. This is why we're here to, to spread that with people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and in all seriousness, SeaWorld of Ohio at the time when I was, you know, out there every day doing like, as you do now, um, SeaWorld of Ohio was sort of the brain trust when it came to behavior because Ted Turner was there. Gray. I mean, they really, really San Diego too, but they really uh, carried us forward in, in behavioral sciences in a huge way. Florida was, was, we were so busy with shows and public, you know? Um, and I remember I used to call Ted in Ohio all the time about training things. Amazing. Well, let's get into the main topic of our episode today, and that is to talk about Tokate, also known as Lolita. I just learned this. I don't know if this a lot of people know this, but Lolita is her stage name, but Toki, that is her name, and that's what her trainers mostly will call her. She is the killer whale at the Miami Sea Aquarium. She also lives with two lags, Lee and Loki, as well. And the Dolphin Company, their press conference released a plan to have these animals go back to the waters of the Pacific Northwest. And this plan 
and everything involved with it has a lot of holes in it legally, logistically. There is a lot of misinformation that's come from this announcement. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is the fact that the people that made this plan are not the zoological experts. They're not in the field. They're not even the ones that are caring for and have this relationship to actually know Toki, Lee, and Loki. So while maybe you you don't know Toki as intimately as you knew Keiko, you have lived that past experience with the attempt and ultimately extremely sad failure of trying to release Keiko. So I'm really excited to have you here to help spread the right information. But before we get into these recent events, making sure that we don't make the same mistake again, can you talk a little bit about your book and the Keiko Project for anybody who maybe isn't familiar with that to give us a little bit of context as we move forward with the current events? Yeah, absolutely. So Keiko, I mean, Free Willy, right? So that that's the the movie Free Willy, but Keiko is a real whale and 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 housed in collected in Iceland. Uh, he was in Marineland, Canada for a short spell, and then moved to Riano Aventura Park in Mexico City, where he stayed most of his life in the care of man. in In 1996, he was moved to Oregon. 1998, he was moved to Iceland, and the idea was that he was going to be released. Right, so following uh trying to follow hollywood now there are a lot of parallels here i will say and we can come back to them as we talk more about tokate but there are a lot of parallels here uh in the way that the keiko thing unfolded a lot of people said it's never going to happen it's never going to happen you know fisheries won't allow it blah 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 surprise surprise but at the time you know keiko got to iceland and nothing really happened the the complexity of their plan was quite literally he will show us the way and they really expected um because shane you have to understand they really believed that that he was a wild whale and you just had to get him back in his environment now we're behaviorists right here and we know that that's not how nature works nothing happened five months in Iceland and they started getting nervous. And, and so they brought us in and you have to understand how controversial that was because we were from the zoological field, myself and my uh, business partner, but immediately we formed a behavioral based plan for rehabilitation and systematically staging him through comes down to behavioral excesses deficits and and uh surpluses things he needed to get rid of he knew things he needed to learn so you stage that out like any approximation you know just a very complex one and so we immediately came up with that plan and i really believed if if it could be done that we could do it but i will also say that we made it a part of our contract agreement with the organization that ultimately the the decision would be made in his best interest because that's what it comes down to and also just for your audience sake you can't just go out and release an animal to the wild there are biological considerations there are legal considerations and so you have to have a permit you have to have stated criteria you have to have intervention plans all of that. And and that existed in this case as well. From reading your book, listening to all the podcasts that you've talked about, Keiko, is the thing that really hit home with me is that his tribe, you said this, his tribe was his people, the people that loved him. And all of us that are in this field, we know this intimately in our souls and people that are friends and family probably know this. And if you're, you fall into none of those categories, I just want to let you know that we spend more time with our animals than our friends and our family. We know their behavior so well. And I always tell people that just like if you go home and your friends or family say, Hey, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. And they're like, no, I know you. I know how you're acting. You're not fine. The relationship that we have with our animals in that communication, we know when our animals aren't that way. And you talked a lot about how he was just, so confused his entire world was ripped away from him and he was just seeking he was seeking that comfort that his entire life of what he knew and ultimately that was part of that tragic end is that he just was searching for those people and what he grew up with and what he honestly Mm -hmm. what his behavior showed us what he was craving we talk a lot about going out into 
the ocean. That's what mm-hmm. you're craving. We talk about as behaviorists all the time, get out of our own heads, follow the behavior. Yeah, well, absolutely. Amen to that. And, all, and, and you know, the thing is that, that um, you, you've heard the saying, we are what we eat, you know, physically. Well, behaviorally, we are what we learn, right? This is not a surprise to us. So when you spend an entire lifetime and it's not just about food. And here's another mistake that our detractors and the people that are trying to take Tokate to the Lolita to the Pacific Northwest right now. Another thing they don't understand. There's two fundamental things that they uh, completely undermine. One, they don't respect a, the unique learning history of an individual. They don't understand the power, the sheer power of that learning history. Secondly, they think that our relationship with animals is food-based. They think that as soon as you take the food away, the relationship vaporizes. What we know, and you can take this from the laboratory of behavior from B.F. Skinner all the way up through 100 years of behavioral science. What we know is that intermittent schedules and variability and reinforcement form the strongest bonds in relationship. And we know that memory uh, retention and retrieval in those same patterns as uh, reinforcement schedules also create that relationship and you live through experiences. So food really has nothing to do with it. And I can tell you a dozen real world, hardcore experiences with the animals I've learned with where food has had nothing to do with it. Um, And that, that proved out with Keiko. So we're not talking about this today in 2023 as theory, right? We can, but we can also look to Keiko and see exactly what happened in that scenario. And every single uh, time he was given opportunity to go to the open ocean or wild whales or whatever, he chose humans. Why? Because of an immensely powerful and strong learning history and relationship with humans. And that is perfect transition to having that past knowledge to talking about Tokate, Lee and Loki, those animals that live at Miami Seaquarium, and in Toki's case, for over 50 years, that has been her home, and that is her learning history. And it's really important, once again, just to note that this announcement was made by people who don't really know this individual animal. You talked about that power, her history, have that relationship with her. We're going to get into a lot of that playing into the fact that this is not in the best interest of this animal and these these three animals. And one thing that we really want to hammer home for people is make sure you do your research in anything in life. Do your research. Make sure that you are listening to those people that have that firsthand knowledge and expertise. And in general, a lot of people throughout the world have this fairy tale view of releasing an animal, especially one that has been under the care of humans for the last five decades. So Mark, can you talk a little bit about why these plans are not actually in the best interest of Toki and her well-being? Sure, sure. It's it, it, it's a highly complex situation. I mean, Hollywood, you know, everything in Hollywood is a Cinderella story, and it's it, and the deception is is cloaked in simplicity. Um, Mother Nature requires detail and nuance and science demands nuance, you know, so we we have to take everything we've learned over five decades, more than five decades and apply it to this situation if we're really interested in what's right for her. Right. And so the beginning and the end of that is her behavioral history, her learning history. We also have to take into account her health. She is a senior whale. Now, for a lot of your audience that may not know, just to fast forward through some of this, there's a lot of conjecture out in the echo chamber of social media and the public domain about, you know, a 93-year-old mom and swimming off into the sunset. And I get it. I get it. That's really attractive and heartwarming to believe in. Um, But when I personally firsthand saw what Keiko suffered through and the confusion that he displayed and the coping mechanisms that he displayed, the stress response, it, it's it's heartbreaking. And I don't wanna see a whale go through that again, any animal go through that again. So let's take a look at her, her behavioral history. That's really simple. We know that she's got five decades. Keiko was with humans for two. She's been with humans. And, and listen, it's not just about the fact that she's in a man-made facility with humans. It's about 
she has been uh, involved in operant conditioning with a deliberate purpose to develop positive relationships with humans for 50 years. So you really got to think hard about that. You can't unshoot that gun. You can't unravel that. She will always, always seek human attention. And I'll go so far as to say, Shane, a little bit of drama here. You know, the, the people that want to do this talk all the time about her being ripped from her family and her family of the spiritual nation of uh, native tribes up there. I would say, hold on, guys, please do not rip her from her family twice in her life. Her family now is in Miami, but she's got health issues too. So look, all the current science, there's, there's conjecture out there about her mom's 93 swimming around. Well, we've got DNA science on that animal. It's not her mom. She's not related. We, we, no one can prove whether she's 93 or not. All the science we have indicates, and this is based on the Southern resident population where uh, Tokate comes from. All the current science indicates that a female reaches post-productive age at approximately 41 years of age, and that they, on average, live about 19 years beyond that. Now, that would put Tokate at somewhere between two to four years of her life expectancy. So she may live, based on the science we have, to about 60, and she's somewhere between 56 and 58. So we have to take that into account, too. Now, the you know, when you take a senior animal and here, let's go back to behavior real quick. Cause I actually get really excited about this stuff We're we're learning more and more. And I started delving into it during the Keiko project. And we're learning more and more today about memory mechanisms and how they affect our behavior. One of the things we know is that our memory declines as we get older. And this is true in animals as well. Other forms of memory start to take over uh, associative memory which is really contextual. So what that means in plain English is the older we get, the more important it is for our well-being to be in familiar surroundings, right? So again, as you start to frame this entire picture around what is best for her, the best thing for her is to immediately uh, improve and fix her life support, her water quality, her nutrition, clean up that environment around her, make sure there's no black mold, get her shade structure and bring some of her familiar trainers back to her and keep her with her poolmates. Secondly, I would say it's to build her a bigger habitat. If, if we, you give me a blank check, now I'm setting aside cost here, but you give me a blank check. It's, it's to build her a bigger habitat. Yeah. And I think one thing that I personally, when I read this news and I saw Jim say the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, was backing this, my immediate reaction was, I am rooting against the Colts every single game, <laughs> every single game. Uh, well, but then you said something that you said he might be well-intentioned. He just might, well, definitely I, I, he doesn't I have, have to the right people. That. Yeah, That's I have to believe people. that. Mm -hmm. I think he's been misinformed. I think, again, it's it's so easy. If you didn't have your background, Shane, it would be so easy for you to believe the Cinderella story. Yeah. You know, that he's that she's going to swim off into the sunset. And, and in part of us, we want to believe that, right? But again, we know better. We know better if we stop for a minute and we really look at it. Plus, there are motivations here on every side. I mean, humans are fundamentally flawed right we we there's agendas uh, galore and money galore and interest so you know to to this aquarium the new ownership right now lolita can't be uh tokate cannot be used in public presentations and so to them she must just seem like a huge money pit and you know long comes this organization that says well we can free her and you know um, lots of heartstrings there and lots of, lots of money to, to donations to be made and whatnot. So I, I just really think we need to look back again, strongly at the Keiko project and, 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 and take what we learned from his legacy and apply that here and apply our knowledge here and, and communicate that to the public. I, I will say too, you know, this has been a very, very interesting week. I have never seen the outpouring in her defense 
in my entire career, in my 35 years in this field, something different is going on here. And it's really inspiring. And I think most of the general public really is understanding. They really are. They're understanding. And that's a big deal. Yeah. And I think one thing that helps with that understanding is you're seeing all these people that either currently or in their past have spent so much time with Toki. They love her and they're saying, this is, we know her so well, this is what's best for her in her current place where she's familiar with it's from their accounts. Any small change for her is a big deal. And I think you think about any humans, any animal, we all, all of us that work with animals, we have those animals that are super resilient. I've one of our sea lions, Nana, one time I was running, I needed to have new shoes for a long time. Floor was wet. I bit the dust. My bucket hit the ground, large noise, fish (laughs) everywhere. He could have easily ate all of it, but he stopped and was just like, really, dude, come on, let's get that going. Let's go, let's go and do what we're doing. Where other of the sea lions in that exact same habit, the same environment that happened, I bet they would have, some of them would have ate every single piece of fish on the ground. Other ones would have stopped and turned and ran right back to where they came. So, you know, because they're all unique individuals, right? Yeah. Bingo. And yeah, I mean, and the thing is, you know, here's the other thing for the general public when you're talking and interacting with the general public about Lolita in this situation is, look, she's she's not some magical creature. She's made of the same stuff we are. And and you don't um, Keiko. They said about Keiko a few things. They said that he that instinct was going to kick in and he'd figure it out. Well, that didn't happen, of course. They said that he if we found his family, he they you know, they would reunite and they'd know what to do. We did find his family. We identified pods he was exposed to that shared the same genomes as Keiko. Um, That doesn't matter. You can't walk through if you're adopted at an early age, you don't walk through a crowded mall, run into your biological mother and instantly recognize her. That's just not the way the world works. So, you know, and then they they also said if he learned how to hunt, he could survive. Well, these are social animals. They don't live by themselves. So integration is important. And one other big, big piece of this that is being overlooked, I think, is that she is a senior animal. She does not have the ability to produce naive T cells and, you know, in her immune system to to mount a defense against things her body's never seen before. Uh, So you put her in a different environment that has completely different pathogens, bacteria, toxicities, mercury, you know, the works, that's dangerous to her. That's a threat to her. And I'll say lastly, Shane, if I can, because I, 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 the idea that an animal that has spent their majority of their life in human care, the idea that we need to let a whale be a whale or a dog be a dog or a sea lion be a sea lion. Again, it ignores their unique learning history. She is not a wild whale. She is not a wild whale. And the idea of her swimming around in some sanctuary being largely ignored because they think that's what a whale should be breaks my heart because you know what she's going to want. She wants her routine. She wants her familiar things and her, even her familiar people. I heard the same story. I'll just leave you with this. I heard the same story. I was talking to a colleague today uh, who worked with her in 89 through early 90s, and they put a live grouper in the pool for enrichment. And she freaked out and was running from the grouper. The grouper was chasing her, and one of the lags was chasing the grouper. And it just sounded like the most hilarious scene I've I've ever heard. Really great. I think everything that you're saying there makes so much sense. And going along with that, where I want to kind of take this right now in the vein of making sure that as this continues to progress and in the future for other things that may come up, that we have the correct factual science-based information that is the stuff that's being heard, learned, and spread. And one thing that you had said was that as a group, as an industry, we were blindsided by this announcement mm-hmm. coming just really just like that. And so my question for you is how do you think the way for the future is? So that way organizations like ABMA, IMADA, AMPA, 
all these these organizations that have that knowledge, that have that experience, that have the expertise, that we are the ones that are being consulted as opposed to people that don't have that information or background? Yeah, gosh, you know, that is a very tough question. And I will say, I think it is going to be a conversation that goes well into the future, um, a conversation that's already started, that's been going on. And I think it's going to go well into the future. And, and, and a lot of the discussion is going to be around this situation and how, how we, how do we, how have we found ourselves in this situation? Because listen, if I haven't said it, let's just say it out loud. No one approves of her situation and by the Mm -hmm. way she's not the only animal that needs a little attention in this in this scenario um you know they're the white-sided dolphins with her and things of that nature so i think i think the entire situation down there really needs to be under a microscope now back to your your question to me sitting where i sit now in my career and and the things i've i've participated in the the my learning history i think our community has to take a more active role in policing ourselves and and our members and and why do i say that well what's at stake is so absolutely critical to the future of species conservation species preservation we can't afford to get this wrong this is not most, so a lot of your audiences aren't going to get this, but I use it all the time. I say it's, you know, the modern zoo is not your father's Oldsmobile. What I mean by that is that the mission of zoos, I don't even know if zoos had a mission 40 years ago. They, they were, they were public display. Well, that's not what we are anymore. We're not even what we were 10 years ago. It, it, it's evolving rapidly and the future of the zoological field is critical in species preservation. So I think first we have to recognize that although the, our field has advanced greatly, it's still seen the same way by the general public as entertainment, still seen the same way as it was 30 years ago. And that's why criticism from our detractors using 30, 40, 50 year old information often uh, gets traction with the general public because we haven't we haven't brought them with us. We've failed to bring the family room with us on our journey, and I don't know why. I know we've done a lot, and I don't know why. But the average person doesn't understand that the link between zoological sciences and wildlife preservation is one and the same. Why don't they? So we, we've got a couple different levers we've got to pull on, I think. Um, but I don't have a crystal ball. It's a tough question. Which is why I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of opinions. I can, I can do that all day long. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect switch that we're going to continue talking about this, keeping in mind. But I do want to also get into Mark's talk that he did at the really honestly rallying cry that he had at our conference called passes prologue it ties in perfectly to these discussions with toki because we have those past experiences with keiko and we're making sure that we're learning and during this talk you implored all of us to be proud of our work what we do with animals truly matters to conservation and saving species exactly what you just said and i think one of those big differences of saying bringing people along with us is that it doesn't have to be all these big organizations. Everything that we're doing individually matters every day, no matter what we're doing. If we're not even meaning to, we are impacting people and that is important. And one of the hard things I think though, is that animal activists definitely view animals very differently than we do. And you kind of touched on this, but how can we influence them and the public to view animals realistically is there ways that you have that you think that maybe we can present animals differently during presentation shows through training even through their free time as they're just no humans around they're watching the animals engaging in purposeful tasks and an enriched environment how can we change or fine-tune or even get a megaphone with the mindset to help with that the immediate answer to that is that's up to the the current generation and young people coming up and i wouldn't i wouldn't want to try to fill that space 
but let me back up and just let's talk about context for a se- se- uh, second. You know, there, there, there's several different tracks there with what you're talking about. And, you know, one is that how animal activists view animals differently. And I did try to just brush on that during the talk at IMATA and ABMA. You have to understand that they don't have the benefit, the advantage, the privilege that you and I have. Their relationship with animals has largely been as an owner and a pet. And so 100% emotional based right? We have the benefit of not just the love, but the science and the systematic approach to how we train and condition and take care of these animals. And so, you know, that creates that that, that's hard for a person that doesn't have that advantage to understand. How do we bridge that gap? One of the ways that I talked about also is that we've got to get our words right. Um, Because when we talk about zoological care with a hate build word and framework like captivity, we're doing ourselves a disservice and ultimately we're doing a disservice to the animals themselves. And I will argue we're doing a massive disservice in undermining species preservation. And why is that? Well, you just hit the nail on the head, Shane. The everyday trainer that's out there working with animals, I'll argue, is more important than any superstructure that exists above them. Why? Because you are in a constant everyday conversation with the general public. And you have to remember the general public, people create change, not politicians, not activists, not propaganda, people people create change and we're whispering to them every single day when i talked about that what i was trying to point to was our interactions through behavior they create an understanding and a value for an animal that that you don't even have to have a conversation with a person for that to take place so that's critical and i'll we'll probably get to it but behavior is necessary in wildlife management too that's the next big frontier for zoological sciences. And having people understand that by being able to come to a zoological institution and seeing that, understanding it on, um, I'm going to say it, a simpler level compared to Ken Ramirez helping to train elephants to completely alter their migration pattern to save them, quite literally from poachers. And having that ability in a zoological institution gives people that basic not understanding of oh this is something that can happen yeah yeah well and see this goes back to so let's just take a quick jaunt through history right um 50 years ago zoos were uh, at that era you have to think about the era of societal development right so zoos were a necessary thing because we were fascinated by animals now we can argue all day about how it was done and criticize it but at that time people needed to hear hey isn't this a cool animal and and the way we reached the public back then was by uh, aligning animals with human traits because people needed to understand oh wow they're like me therefore i care Right. Well, we've now gone past that. We've gone way past that because we did that job so well, so well, in fact, too well, (laughs) um, that we started looking at animals with too much emotion and not enough thinking. So here we are today. And where I would say that takes us is we want to celebrate the animals, our animals differences, not their likenesses, their differences. Hey, look at how this animal adapts to their environment. Look how masterful they are at doing this and doing that. And by the way, they learn and interpret the world around them just the same way you and I do. And that's fascinating. Kind of going with that, you're talking about behavior modification and training. And that's really the focus of this podcast. And we're going to do episodes like this, which is so critical as well. But training plays a very big role in this whole conversation. And in your talk, one thing that you wrote, and I actually wrote it, I looked back, I was looking back through my notes. I took up like a third of the page. I started and said, train, you said trainers or translators. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's actually quite simple. People are full of perception bias. That simply means when they come into a situation, they're looking at an animal, they already have 
formed an idea of what that animal uh, is, what it's like, whether they like it or not, its value really in the world around them. And we all do this. When they see you give a signal to that animal, if it's just a gate from one place to another, or it's to have all your penguins line up for a feeding or for foot check or whatever it may be, when they see that SD, that signal, that purposeful thing that you do, and the animal respond with recognition, it changes their value perception it breaks through that perception bias and they go whoa and you know this happens to all of us i it it's happened to me and i mean even since i've been a professional animal trainer i i talked about this at at, at the conference but i i'll never forget i saw a presentation at imata i think it was 20 2009 or 2014 and a trainer had trained um, stingrays to do a choreographed underwater show with a scuba diver, and it changed my view of stingrays forever. So when I say trainers are translators, that's what I'm talking about. They're translators of value. And again, it doesn't even require you having a conversation with the person watching. They, we all get this. We get it. We're hardwired to understand. Hey, he just asked for this, and the animal did that whoa that that's all it takes it's a moment and and from people that don't even really realize you know think about i fast i fast forward i rewind to when i was a freshman in college going to the columbus zoo and watching their animals and just being like oh my gosh this bird is going crazy yeah two two years later i start working there and i'm like oh my gosh cues duh but like that's the (laughs) (laughs) duh but that's the really cool aspect of they're watching us they're seeing that relationship you know our animal the animal does something and they see us be like good job like yeah like that was so good like blah blah blah, and all these things and that that is that translation that you're talking about that immediate connection that they're having with that animal because they can relate to us and how they maybe have that perception so much, so much. I mean, listen, parents especially look at these things we do, these amazing things these animals learn from us and go, my gosh, I can't even get my kid to do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, look, remember the conference, the sugar glider. If, yes, those, if yeah. that, that's, you know, that blows your mind. If you don't, I, I never get tired of it. If they were approaching extinction and endangered and, and they are in different population areas, that's what you'd want to show people. Look at this cool little animal and what they can learn. And I really think training, that interaction that we have with them is is so critical to, it links directly, directly to species preservation. If I'm being honest with everyone that's listening, this conversation is why I wanted to help start this podcast and have this as a resource from ABMA. I'm sure through these 10 episodes, you've understood I am definitely a behavior nerd. I love talking about this stuff. It, it gets me really excited, but I also had a lot of really great mentors and experiences. And I truly believe that the future of the modern zoo is us showing that relationship through training, showing that this is where the animals are living and look at all the things they can do. Look at how engaged they are. Look at how happy they are. Look at how challenged they are in positive ways all my coworkers will tell you, I love enrichment, very into the, I like being creative with that to come up with those ways that animals are going to be using There's those natural behaviors that they can and their bodies are made to do. But really behavior and that training aspect just takes all of that to another level. You said in your, I also started this, you said if just doing enrichment is like crossing a river with no oars, you, right. you can do it. But why would you? Because we can make right. it so much easier and stronger. Right. Well, I, and, and so, you know, yeah, when you've got to approach every animal, what the message there I was, I was trying to communicate is that you've got to approach every animal with a behavioral plan and what that means. So I kind of separate training and behavioral management, and I'm not suggesting that's appropriate or, or a professionally accepted thing, but there are 
times that you're you're actively shaping a specific behavior with a specific purpose and SD and all that, right? Other times you're looking at the animal's behavior overall and you are managing that behavior. You don't want to step up and present enrichment when the animal's engaged in something maybe self-destructive or stereotypical or harmful in some other way or undesirable, you don't, you certainly don't want to do that, right? Well, that's behavioral management, management, that's being aware of, of what you're influencing. So that, that is the gravity of what we do. And I think that that behavioral management perspective has to be at the top. It's the capstone. We didn't plan to talk about this, but one of the resources that ABMA has is you can go and read all the presentations from past conferences. Thad Lysenik and Ted Turner actually had a presentation about using enrichment as a way to reinforce social animals for peaceful coexistence. Is that pro-social behavior? Absolutely. Exactly what you just talked about is paying attention that if these two animals are beating each other up they're blocking one animal that's not the right time to for us to be able to reinforce that when they're all swimming laying foraging together then you add that in and just you said it earlier the power the power of that is then there behind that yeah absolutely and and i think what goes hand in hand with that too is that you have to have a vision for your animals you can't just blindly go in and say well what do i train today i mean there's got to be a big vision And there has to be goals based on that vision and then, you know, ways to measure your progress. But a vision is really sitting down one day and saying, how do I imagine this environment if it were perfect? If it were perfect, what's a day in the life when it's perfect? And then how do I map my way to that world? And that's how you make your goals. And animals need that. A hundred percent. And that's, you know, all of us that are listening to this and uh, throughout the field, that is, and if you're not, if you're not in the animal care field intimately, I hope that you, from this podcast, from your experience of the people that you know, you understand that that is what we are doing and striving for all the time. But uh, today, to end today's episode, I want to talk about how you ended your talk at the conference because it was amazing. I, I told you this after the conference while we had uh, some beverages in our hands. That the person next to me, I actually don't even know who this person was. They, I saw them wiping tears out of their eyes. I, I felt that emotion. I'm not someone who gets emotional often, but I felt how inspired I was and how you ended it was you said that when people ask us what we do, we should respond with I'm in species preservation. Mm. Mind blown. Wow. Mm. I'm getting, I'm getting the chills again. (laughs) So context for that and where I was coming from, I'm aware that especially the last 10 years, a lot of trainers have been taking a lot of criticism, right? From disinformation in the public arena. And I wanted to touch on that. That's where I was going with that. Because first of all, I believe that statement 1000%. I know. I don't just believe it. I know everything I've done in my career has taught me where this goes and where this goes is we have a fundamental role to play in species preservation. There's a direct link. You're not just cleaning habitat on some idle Tuesday and you don't matter. What you do matters so much uh, in the big picture and you can't ever forget that. But what really broke my heart in in looking around at, at the community, the professional community the last decade is that, you know, when I was there, um, we were rock stars. When we went to public places, we got overrun with, you know, uh, fan people asking about, oh my gosh, tell me about what you do, blah, blah, blah. If we tried to hide our logo or our whistle bridge, it was because we just wanted a break. So I come from a very different world. And and what breaks my heart is that we we need what I got today because we are literally facing losing many well-known species to human impact and events and ecosystems and habitats and at an accelerating rate. We don't have time for this. And we are the heroes, whether the 
people know it or not. And we need to be the heroes of the future. And so I think that's what I, I have to say when I unpack that. And I hope everyone that is listening to this really comes away feeling proud of what we're doing. And uh, earlier when you talked about captivity, I, I remember this. What you said was, if we take the word captivity out of our mouths, it'll come out of the hearts of everyone else. And I think that for me is what really hit me when you said, saying that I'm in species preservation, it's all about the way that we view ourselves is going mm-hmm. to help people view us correctly. And I have this story. I can't believe this happened because it was amazing. I can, but <laughs> I after the conference, I had a crazy, crazy conference doing stuff. Came back to Cincinnati. My college roommate got married. I got dropped off on the way to Columbus and I had to take an Uber there. So, you know, we're in the car, they're being nice with small talk and they say, hey, what do you do for work? And I went, here it is. Let's do this. And I said, I'm in species preservation. I oh said man, that. that's so awesome. And that she, is awesome. her response, this is what, this is what's really awesome. Her response was, that's really cool. How do you save animals? Yeah. That was her response. That was. Doors I, open. Doors open. Gone differently. If I say I work at a zoo, that conversation could have gone anyway by, by framing that because it's true Yep. that already set the stage for me to then explain exactly how what we do training, working with these animals is saving animals. And I hope everyone who hears this knows that there are people out there and you talk about vocal minorities all the time. I do. I, I personally have been lucky that when I go places, I have my stuff on all the time and I get so many people being like, that's amazing. That's so cool. So it's, it's not extinct in our world, but I think us having that ability to control that and to show people why what we do matters is so vital. Gosh, you, that is such a fantastic story. And I'm just, I'm grateful to hear it, Shane. You you do, you have to change the framework because you know, the vast majority of people I talk to, even people uh, who would approach me criticizing, when they get a chance to understand, the vast majority I've ever spoken to understand and want the same things, but you can't start by poisoning the conversation with the wrong framework. Mm-hmm. So, so amazing. And I hope that as everyone is leaving today, you have some of that information about Tokate, Lee and Loki. And as we are, this is just the beginning, like we said, but I'm, I'm so excited to hear you say that this time feels different and all of us, let's take that momentum and keep building, keep doing the great things. And we're going to, we will change the world and we will help to save animals every single day. Absolutely. And if I can just say really quickly, a little bit of a tangent, but, uh, you know, it, it is different. What's happening since the this issue with Tokate has been announced, what's happening in the community professionally and in the public arena is different than I've ever seen before. And I'm very inspired by that. I will say that I think we always have to remember that we are professionals and there is a difference and and we have to maintain. That doesn't mean go out and become a keyboard warrior and attack other people. It just means you are an emotional creature. We do have a noble and honorable profession and you've got to stand up for the science and the understanding of what we do. And, And I see that happening and it's overwhelming. It's inspiring. It's great. And gosh, it it I love it. It it's really an interesting time and a shift in momentum. And I can tell you from the conference till now, I'm feeling that I'm feeling that inspiration, that vigor. And I think that everyone is too. I mean, looking at look at, like you said earlier, the outpouring of support, outrage, but also support for what we are saying with this situation that's happening currently is not correct. And we all know, as we mentioned, there are a lot of things that we can work on. And the way Mm. that we work on that is together. That is bringing all of us together, becoming united front and together we can, we can make this better for not just these animals, but every animal as we move forward. 
Yeah, and there there is actually a tangible thing everybody can do in this current situation. Um, I really am. There's a there's a petition on change.org and it's floating around social media. Now the petition itself kind of calls for SeaWorld to intervene and take her. And I think all of us know that's very, very unlikely. That's not the point of a petition, right? What this petition is doing is demonstrating the volume of uh, critical thinking, independent thinkers that that support uh, a solution that's in her best interest, right? So I would say, you know, get that out, get that out because it puts us on the, it puts the issue on the national stage and, and that's what we need for her. Yeah. And I, we were talking before that Mark is going to have some interviews with some non-zoological based things like our podcast and other podcasts that are out there. So we're excited to hear that. And I'm also excited to hear your joke on TMZ as well. <laughs> that's right the chain gave me by the way credit to shane so we'll see how that goes well really credit to you because you said it at the conference i just uh i gave you the reminder that you have that in your back pocket <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't have it just, i wouldn't have thought of it though thank you uh, i will let's just say that it combines the oscar best picture winner from this year and behavior in a really a really fun way right <laughs> All right. Well, do you have any last minute thoughts on the situation or the episode before we move on to our training tales? I don't. I would say tuned in, pace yourself. This this uh, kind of thing is going to go on for quite some time. A lot of changes. There will be some hard left turns. Um, you know, uh, stay engaged and and support each other. That's it. Amazing. Now we end every episode with our training tales. So, Mark, do you have a interesting training story that you can share with our guests oh gosh i i i have plenty um you know so one of yeah i will i'll tell the keiko story i think because it's just crazy um you know when we first took him out to the open ocean we had trained him to follow a walk boat just like a dog healing alongside without a leash and that was because we had to navigate our way out of a busy harbor and go in the right direction and all that good stuff um but we wanted him to increase his physical stamina right so we want him to follow the boat so we would go out and we would do these little sprints we'd run the boat up to 26 knots and then you know half a mile and slow down wanted to work him sort of like doing intervals and the first time we did it, um, he disappeared. We slowed the boat down and he popped up right next to us instantaneously. And we all looked at each other like that's impossible. There's no <laughs> way, no way he just hung with us, you know, at 26 knots. So we did it again and again, he popped up and we're like, what in the world is going on? Uh, well, we ultimately discovered on the next thing that as soon as we would kick in the motors and this was a jet driven boat by the way so there's no exposed prop as soon as we would kick in the motors he he would just get underneath the slipstream of the boat ventral to the hull and he just rode it he wasn't even fluking his flukes weren't even moving (laughs) so he was free riding the whole time on this thing so the reason this is a training story is because then we had to get a target involved with the platform on the Mm. side of the boat and teach him that the criteria was to be 12 10 12 feet off the side of the boat so that he had to you know do the work himself (laughs) but uh it was just the funniest dang thing because we could not figure it out and uh you know he outsmarted us on that one that is amazing. You got to love animals, right? They yeah. they can think of so many things that we don't even think about. Uh, Surprise us every day. Every single day. That is amazing. Well, as we end today, Mark, is there any way if people have questions that they can reach you? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not very active on social media. I have been lately. I'm not normally, but, uh, there is a Facebook page for killing Kago, the book, and I try to respond to everything eventually, uh, if you're patient, um, that's one way. A lot of people I'm connected to professionally over Facebook. And I know, I know that's for old people, but that's, that's the, that's the best I can do. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, I must be old too. Cause that's what I use. But, and if you also, have questions for Mark. If you email our podcast at abc at the abma.org, uh, I will reach out to Mark and we'll do our, do our best to get those answers back to you as well. And just once again, just if you haven't read 
his book, highly suggest it. You can get it on audiobook, all those different great things. So once again, thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. Thank you, Shane. I really appreciate it. This is fun. And that concludes today's episode. This, of course, just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out on any of the ABMA social channels or by emailing abc at theabma.org. We'd love to hear from you. And this podcast is made for you. So if any questions at all, please let us know, especially with this announcement about the plans from the dolphin company to attempt to release these three animals to the Pacific Northwest. It's really just important that we get this information out there, the right information from the people that are experts and know these animals and are truly looking out for the best well-being and what's best for all these animals. So if you've any questions at all about any of that, there are a lot of different groups on Facebook. And also, like I said, email us and we'll be happy to get you into contact with the people that can help. Once again, special thank you to Mark Simmons for joining us today. James McAleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla the Sea Lion, all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the conversation. If you aren't already a member, consider joining the ABMA by visiting at theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts and join us next week on Animal Behavior Conversations. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. Just pretend like what you said was the people from Ohio were smart and I'm going to take that and we're going to we're going to move on. (laughs) That's it. That's it. (laughs)